0: grateful to have this opportunity to share the word with you. I invite you to open to Genesis 45 this evening. Genesis 45. There is an outline in the back. If you haven't had a chance to grab one, we will work to get through those varied uh, blanks that you have there. Genesis 45. I'd like to speak to you this evening on God's providence and the course of your life from Genesis 45. Let's start with the word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at the text this evening. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to open your word. We recognize the freedoms that we share and we take for granted here um, are are certainly not true everywhere. And so, Father, I pray that the freedoms we have to come and to gather and to hear your word, may they never um, become so mundane to us that we lose the preciousness of this exercise. This evening, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you might have for us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a rabbinic story told about a rabbi named Isaac, son of Yekel, who lived in Krakow, Poland. One night in a dream, he saw the distant city of Prague, noticing that there was a certain bridge over the Vltava with a buried treasure underneath it. The dream was so vivid that he couldn't forget it, especially when it kept recurring every night for two weeks. So finally, in order to satisfy his, his burning curiosity, he determined to walk all the way to Prague to see it for himself. He made the journey to the city and found the bridge, recognizing it from his dream— He went underneath to locate the treasure, and when he got underneath the bridge, well, we're going to come back to that. We're actually going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But for now, here's what I want you to know. I want you to recall that Joseph found himself in a very prickly situation that was by and large precipitated by a dream. In fact, two dreams. And you find those two dreams in Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. He got himself into some hot water with his brothers and his parents. Remember, he had about 11 brothers in all, and he let them know that one day his brothers and his parents would all bow down before him. Well, his brothers did not have a favorable favorable view of Joseph. In in fact, Joseph knew that he was the favored son. And he leveraged these dreams, and and he made sure that they knew that one day they would bow down to him. In Genesis 37, verse 4, we learn that the brothers could not speak peacefully to Joseph. And then hate, piled on hate after Joseph these dreams, and then not long after these dreams, Joseph's brothers planned to kill him, but sold him into slavery instead. They proceeded to tell Jacob that Joseph was killed. You remember that, how they brought that coat of many colors and dipped in blood, and they let him know that his son had been killed, torn to shreds by a wild animal. And then a series of other unjust events happened to Joseph. So what we will do this evening as we take a look at Genesis 45 is we're going to have three observation points as we survey this chapter. First, I want to focus on the understanding of what divine providence is. Second, we'll give attention to divine providence that's at work in Jacob's life, in Joseph's life rather. And then the third observation point for us is we'll apply divine providence to our lives. So these are the three stops we'll make as we take a look at this passage this evening. Genesis chapter 37 through 50, that block of Genesis, they're referred to as the Joseph narrative. Sometimes you hear them called the Joseph story because they narrate the events of Joseph's life. Moses gives approximately 3% to creation. When you look at the entire body of work in Genesis, about 3% of Genesis is dedicated to creation. Joseph gets 30% of Genesis. That's more than Abraham, that's more than Isaac, that's more than Jacob. Joseph gets 30% content in Genesis. So quite a bit of time is spent in uh, in Joseph's life. You may also recall that as, as you look at Genesis, there are many occasions where God directly speaks or communicates to the patriarchs. You remember that God gave the command or, or the covenant to Abraham, told him about all that will happen through him, but by the time you get to Joseph, God doesn't speak directly to him anymore. And it's almost assumed for the reader that even though God is not directly speaking to Joseph, even in the midst of all these troubles, that God is very much active and directly involved in Joseph's life. It is as clear as if God was speaking directly to him. But the chapters leading up to Genesis 45 are like Lombard Street in San Francisco, It's got all of these turns, but they eventually funnel down to exactly Genesis 45. Joseph was living in God's will at every point in his life. It may have been difficult for him to recognize, but God's grand purpose was being worked out in Joseph. And I would argue this evening that God's hand was always orchestrating the events, and he remained faithful to Joseph even though God's hand was invisible to him, and I would say that it's invisible to us just as well today. So I want to take a look at our first observation point, and that is this. If you're filling out the outline, this is number one. Divine providence explained. So what I'd like to do here is to take take two steps. One, I want to draw distinctions. And then I want to draw out a definition, a working definition for us to consider when we think of divine providence. What are we talking about when we think of divine providence? So distinction number one, what is the difference between fate and providence? When we talk about these things, what are we talking about? What's the difference between the two? And I would say, if I go the right direction... What is the difference between fate and providence? Here it is. Fate is impersonal and arbitrary. Providence is personal and methodical. Fate coldly says, whatever is, must be. Providence, on the other hand, warmly says, whatever God ordains, must be. So as I think of it, I I think of fate as a ship in the ocean without a captain. And it goes wherever the winds and the currents take it, but it has no intended destination. Whereas I would like to view Providence as an airplane with a pilot that intentionally works towards its destination. You see, fate is, is, is a cold master. And in fact, to the Greeks, fate was absolute. In fact, the gods even were subject to fate in Greek mythology. But the reality is that the difference between fate and providence is a person, God, and purpose. All right, a second distinction. What is the difference between sovereignty and providence? Are they interchangeable? Are they synonymous? I I would say that they're very close. But here's what I'd like to draw out for you as we think about providence and sovereignty sovereignty accents God's power to work whereas providence emphasizes God's purpose behind his work. So I don't want to draw too, too hard of a distinction between these terms. I'm only trying to draw out what an emphasis might be in the two. Sovereignty, God's power, whereas providence really points to his purpose behind his working. And that's why I want to focus on divine providence this evening because God had very much the power to work. He was sovereign to do everything that he did, but he was also purposeful behind it. It wasn't just arbitrary acts happening to Joseph. All right, one more definition. What is divine providence? Let me offer this, this working definition for you. The providence of God means a continuing action of God in preserving his creation and guiding it toward his intended purposes. That's a working definition that I want to offer, certainly not mine. You have the citation there. But as you think of providence, theologically sound terms are not always biblically sourced terms. You think of the word trinity you think of the word divinity, you think of the word incarnation, you think of the word rapture, inerrancy, discipleship. What all those terms have in common, they're not in scripture. So what happens when we go to define a term that is extra biblical is that we can't go to Genesis 45 verse 18 and say, this is what providence means. We have to take the information in scripture and allow it to define that term. So that's a working definition of providence with the content that we see throughout Scripture. Now, I've also included a series of confessions that the church has. It's on the back of your handout. And you'll find about four of those. And all I want to do by drawing attention to those is that you will find some of those ideas that we've just talked about in the working definition of, of God's Purposeful leading. It's not by chance or fortune. It is very much God at work. And we see the church historically affirming with conviction God's providence. So I've given you about four of those to consider. So the church has given some thought to what divine providence is. And I want us to do the same thing this evening. All right. So we've attempted to differentiate. and to define providence. Now what I'd like to do is go to our second observation point. So if you're taking notes, this is number two. Divine providence considered. So this is where we're going to spend some time in Genesis 45. As we look at Genesis 45, I want us to see six evidences and those are going to be the outlines that are A through F, I want us to see six evidences of God's divine providence at work in Joseph's life. I want us to consider, then, divine providence in Joseph's life. If you t- turn very quickly to Genesis 37, and you see verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. This term, these are the generations, is found ten times in the book of Genesis. And each time it's found, and some are more consequential than the others, but this phrase tends to mark important activities of God. In some cases, after significant events. For example, this term is found after creation and after the flood. So, these are sort of indicators of something big or something important or something noteworthy for us to take note. And here, Moses tells us, these are the generations of Jacob. And then what happens? The, The camera pans, as it were, to Joseph at 17 years old. He's a favored son and very aware of his favored status. And he makes sure that he knows that he flaunts his coat of many colors. He lets them know they're going to bow down to him one day. And here's the youngest son telling all his older brothers all about it. Now, the narrative does come back to Jacob. After Genesis 45, we see God give a vision to Jacob in, in Genesis 46. But for these chapters... 37 through 45, really the focus is on Joseph. So there's a bit of a climb that we see from Genesis 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, and then we get to the pinnacle of all that's happening in Genesis 45. So that's where I want us to focus now for a few moments. Six unexpected evidences of divine providence in Joseph's life. Here's the first one we find an unexpected reunion. Let me read Genesis 45, verses 1 through 3. I'm reading out of the ESV. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me, so no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. These first verses in Genesis 45 are filled with this immense pathos, but there's also a a level of confusion, and you can see that with their brothers, with Joseph's brothers. Here you have, beginning in Genesis 42, What's happening? There is a famine that is happening across the land, and it's impacting Jacob's household as well. So what does Jacob do? They're on the verge of starvation. So Jacob tells his sons, I want you to go down to Egypt. You can buy grain there. And so the sons go down to Egypt to buy grain, just as Jacob commanded them. Now, Joseph recognizes them right away. Turn over to Genesis 42, verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But then, do you see what it says? But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Joseph recognized them. They did not recognize him. And he made sure to play that a little bit because we know about that history. Now, there were two other times where Joseph was overcome with emotion, even though he had this disposition toward them at first. There were two times where he dismissed himself because he started to weep because he was overcome that now he was seeing his brothers. We're talking about a 22-year span from the last time he saw them. He sees them, and he's overcome with emotion two times. But now, when you turn to Genesis 45, you see where it says in verse verse number two, and he wept aloud. Literally, this is the voice of weeping, and it's a Hebrew idiom that's intended to describe the intensity of volume in Joseph's weeping, so much so that the servants who were dismissed to wherever they were dismissed to heard it, and Pharaoh's household. This is an emotionally intense moment, because it is an unexpected reunion. This was a divine providence in the work, in the life of Joseph. And he decides to reveal himself. He says, I am Joseph. He asks about his father well-being But now take a look. What are his brothers' response? Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer answer him, for they were what? They were what? What do you see there? Dismayed. You might see another word, dumbfounded. You might see some other term depending, but they were dismayed. This term, the the, the Hebrew word behind dismayed is dismayed. It speaks to a paralyzing fear on the expectation of destruction. Do you think that's hyperbole for them at this point? I do not think so, not one bit. They knew what they had done, and now here is Joseph, ruler of Egypt, and they are on his turf. Is it any wonder that when he says, I am Joseph that they would be dismayed at his presence. Not at all. But we see reconciliation begin to happen. And then, and we won't turn there now, but if you go to Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21, we see reconciliation fully transpire because by that time, Jacob died. And now the brothers started thinking our father is dead. We have no buffer between us and Joseph. Now he's going to exact revenge. Not so. Joseph assured them that they were fully reconciled. This is an unexpected reunion by divine providence that Joseph and his brothers experienced. Here's a second, an unexpected provision. Now, I'm jumping down to verse 9 through 15. We'll come back to the other verses, but follow along as I read verses 9 through 15. Hurry and go up, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then when he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Here you have an unexpected provision. What was the provision? It was the provision of food and an abundance of it at that. They were in a severe famine. They had no food. That's why they went down to Egypt in the first place. And now they're here, and Jacob promises them all the provision they could ask for from a time of famine. Who would have expected that a simple trip to Walmart, so to speak, to Egypt, to buy grain for food, ended up in this unexpected provision that was abundant far beyond anything they could have had in Canaan? They won't have to worry about food, even in this time of severe famine. In verse 12, why does Joseph say, Now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. I think these brothers are still kind of hallucinating, like, is this real? Is this really Joseph? Joseph? Can it really be Joseph? And Joseph is saying, yes, it is me. I'm the one talking to you. And then Joseph continues to weep, and he begins to hug them. And then you see thirty-five or 45, verse 15. And after that, his brothers talked with him. You remember Genesis 34, 37, verse 4? They could not speak kindly to him. They hated him. They wanted nothing to do with conversation. Now, as a result of this divine providence, there's this unexpected provision, and that reconciliatory work continues to happen. And so now they talk like brothers. What a precious scene we have going here. Number three, we see an unexpected person. Forty-five, sixteen through 20. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beast, go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take your wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. You talk about an unexpected person coming into play here. Here is Pharaoh, who is now telling Joseph's family you not only can come here and tap into our resources, you will get the best of the land. Now, why is this noteworthy? Genesis 43 and verse 32. Take a look there with me quickly. Genesis 43 verse 32. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who are with them with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So there is this clear divide between Egyptian and Hebrew and not favorably for the Hebrews. And now Pharaoh of all people is saying, you Hebrews, you get the best of the land. You talk about divine providence and God's work in this situation. No way was this ever expected. He gave them provision and transportation for the journey to Canaan, back to Egypt. God used a Gentile king. Think of this, God used a Gentile king, Pharaoh, to settle the first fruits of the Hebrew people to a land where they could now prosper and grow into the nation that God promised Abraham I will make of you a great nation. Here we see this glimpse of God fulfilling his promises in this iteration through divine providence. Number four, an unexpected move. Verses 21 to 24. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey to each. And all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin... He gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. And ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread. And provision provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Here's an unexpected move. This was a move no one could have seen coming. Joseph, with Pharaoh's blessing, gives him abundant going-away gifts. He's especially generous with his younger, with his older brother uh, Benjamin. And it's quite the caravan that we end up seeing here. And what does Joseph tell his brothers? Don't quarrel on the way. What's Joseph doing there? Is he, is he now just, just playing big man? And now, even though, yes, they're his older brothers, he's kind of giving them a pat on the head. Don't fight now, boys. Be on your way. Is that what he's doing? I don't think it's that. The word quarrel, the essential idea behind the Hebrew term that is rendered quarrel, is shaking or trembling. Here's what could happen. I think this is what Joseph is seeing. The the, the idea here is that Joseph has already seen them fight. Genesis 42, verse 32, or 22. 22. And and you see they have an argument, and they're saying, see guys, this is exactly what I told you would happen. Now we did that to Joseph, it's now coming back to us. He's seen that already happen. And what he's anticipating could happen is that on the way home, they start thinking about this, fighting amongst themselves, and saying, there's no way that this is actually happening. Joseph is going to have our head, we can't do this, we can't go back. And that they were going to stay in Canaan rather than actually come back to, to, to Egypt. So I think what Joseph is doing, don't quarrel on the way. Don't get to a point where you get so fearful of what happens to you when you come back. It's going to be okay. There was this unexpected move. Number five, we have an unexpected revelation. This is verses 25 to 28. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Imagine being Jacob. Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over the land of Egypt. And his heart, Jacob's heart, became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, changing the name here, said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go see him before I die. An unexpected revelation set up purely by divine providence. The caravan arrives. The brothers share with Jacob two things. Joseph is alive, and he is ruler in Egypt. So what does Jacob do with this? He he gets emotionally spent. Maybe the idea of his heart becomes numb. I, I I mean he he this just deflates him emotionally. Like this cannot be. He was quick. Remember when they presented the coat of many colors with blood on it? He was quick to say, "My son Joseph is dead." He he received the bad news quickly. The good news he just could not believe because it's so good. <clears throat> And they tell him he's ruler over all of Egypt. Well, Jacob just can't bring himself to believe this. There's no way my son is still alive. But then he looks out, and he sees. And then what do the brothers do? They tell them of all the things that, Jacob, that Joseph said. We're going to see that in just a moment. But, but what they communicated was not just he's alive and he's leading Egypt... They told him all the things they talked about. Do you remember they were able to talk again? So they share all of that with Jacob. And Jacob is beside himself with joy. And he exclaims, Joseph is alive and I will see him before I die. All right. <clears throat> Here's number six. We see an unexpected preservation. This is verses four through eight. We're coming back to these now. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me... Three times you're going to see this here, so maybe you underline it. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Here it is again. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. We have an unexpected preservation all through divine providence. One author called these verses, 4 through 8, the macro structure of the Joseph story. In other words, everything comes back to this. If if you think of a four-way intersection, there's an intersection of divine providence, and all of these activities are now all coming to Genesis 45 here with divine providence and how all these things have come together. Now, this isn't the first time that Joseph makes a statement like this. But it certainly is a powerfully timed way to say this, especially in front of his brothers who essentially had a murder plot out for him, but instead decided to sell him to to slavery. But here, Joseph makes it clear that he was able to see all that God was doing. Now, when did Joseph come to this conviction, by the way? When did Joseph get to a place in his life where he was able to say this thing? Was it at 17, when he was sold into slavery? Was it at age 30, when he became the ruler in Egypt? Was it after he was married or after he had his children? I think it was all along the way. Joseph was perceptive, to all that was happening in his life, and yet he was always able to attribute God's hand to everything that was going on in his life. So God providentially preserves Joseph's family in verse 5. And by the way, he doesn't absolve his brothers. In fact, he will always be, as verse 4 says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He will always be that. He doesn't absolve them, but he is able to reconcile with them. And then God providentially preserves his people through Joseph in this time of famine, according to verse 7. You remember when you get into Exodus chapter 1, what you find is the group of 70 that moved from Canaan to Egypt have become now this prosperous nation, in part because of what transpired here. All right. Finally and quickly, divine providence applied. I suggest to you that there are four directions that we can look to apply divine providence. As we think of that, a pretty common pattern for us is what? Life, birth, growth, education, marriage, family, career, retire, and die. Pretty common especially last, first two, first one and last one. But what happens when you remain single beyond when you expected? What about when you struggle with infertility and children never come? What about when the career you had planned never came to fruition? What about when your children don't follow the path of godliness and wisdom? What about when health deteriorates at midlife? What about when your family relationships have been so broken for so long that there's no way that they can reconcile? What about when you go home tonight to an empty house because your spouse died? These, all, all of these unexpected providences are severe, and they're jarring, and they cause us to stagger like a fighter who has just been hit by a powerful right hand but what we know is that God is very much at work. And I would suggest to you first that we look back. This is a reference to recollection. Joseph saw the sinful, harmful, painful events caused by others, but he recognized that they led him to the place where he was. I, I, I would contend this evening, look back and see what good has come of the various events in your life, even though the path has been rough. Number two, we look down. This is a reference to humility. We cannot pretend to understand, I I certainly can't pretend to understand what God is doing in a given circumstance, especially while we are in the fires of the furnace of affliction. Often time will give us a better perspective of all these things, but in the meantime, be humble and don't attribute evil or powerlessness to God. Number three, we look around. This is a reference to perception. We must not see the events in our lives as merely mundane activities that have no bearing to what God is doing in our lives. Be alert to what God is doing in your life and see the difficulties and the joys of life that they both come from the divine hand of God's providence. Fourth, we look up. This is a reference to dependence The circumstances of your life that are seemingly beyond your control are not chaotic, brother and sister. They're not. Do you trust in the providence of God when the path is circuitous? It's everywhere. How often have we tried to blame God and let Him know that what we're experiencing is all a big mistake? We need to keep our dependence on Him and His purposes. All right. I would say to you tonight, we can never separate God's providence from his promises. We can never separate God's providence from his promises. So we explained divine providence. We considered it from Joseph's life and we applied it. Uh, You remember Isaac, the son of Yechil? You thought we forgot. We left him under a bridge. Well, as it turns out, a soldier grabbed him by the back of the neck. He takes him away for questioning. Isaac is asked what he was doing prowling under the bridge. Isaac tells the soldier the truth. The soldier breaks out into laughter. And he says, You fool! Don't you know that you cannot trust what you see in the dreams? Why, for the last two weeks, I myself have dreamt that far away in Krakow, in the house of one Jew, Isaac the son of Yekel, there is a treasure buried under the stove of his kitchen. But wouldn't it be the most idiotic thing if I went all the way over there to look for it? Still laughing, the soldier gives him a kick and lets him go. So Isaac the son of Yekel goes back home and he moves the stone in the kitchen. He found the treasure buried there and lived to a ripe old age as a rich man. Now that's a happy ending. But how many of you, how many of us, do you suppose have wandered far and wide in search of something that was right under our noses all along? Brothers and sisters, we don't need to go outside of our current experience to see God at work. God is providentially giving us purpose right here, right now, in the sweet and severe providences of our lives. William Cooper died in 1800. He was a man who was afflicted with mental illness and depression for a large portion of his life. His illness got so severe that he tried to commit suicide three times. With treatment and the inspiration of his friend John Newton, and yes, the amazing Grace John Newton, he began to recover and write hymns. One of Cooper's hymns was God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the stanzas reads, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's providence in the course of our lives. Our Father, we thank you tonight for what we can learn from your word and your hand in the life of your people, both then and now. In Jesus' name, amen.